my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. A couple of years ago now, back in 2010, I recorded an interview with the then 86-year-old Mako shark hunter Frank Vinicum of Milo near Falmouth. Frank is well known throughout the shark fishing world for his exploits with this the most enigmatic and currently most elusive shark species entering British waters but it would appear that not everybody agrees with Frank's recorded version of events. One man who most certainly doesn't is Frank's brother, Robin Vinicombe, now well into his 70s and unfortunately wheelchair-bound following a stroke, and whose house I'm at at the moment near Falmouth, the venue that witnessed the bulk of the UK's Mako catches throughout the 1960s and early 70s, many of which were brought ashore aboard his boat Huntress. On paper at least, yourself and Frank were collectively responsible for one in three of all Mako sharks ever caught in British waters. But I know that you openly question Frank's involvement in any of this. Frank himself personally had never caught a Mako. Never. He's the skippers of his boats. That's who he's quoting. But he's claiming those fish as his own. But no way. I think he had a big one on once and lost it. And that's the start and finish of it all. Let's now take a big step right back to the very beginning of the Falmouth Mako story by exploring how and when you first became involved in fishing for sharks. Well, that was done by accident. A chap called Mike Connell, he was the manager and director of a company in Plymouth and uh, we were going wreck fishing on the day and it was quite a rough day and I said to Mike, I said, Mike, we're going to have a devil of a job holding on to this wreck. We're going conger fishing. So he said, well, what else can we do? I said, well, we can go in shore and try some of the rocks for a few conger. He said, can we go shark fishing? I said, I've never been shark fishing, Mike, in my life. He said, I have. He said, I'll tell you how how it works. Anyway, we went off, caught a few mackerel, made him a bit of chum. And he shows, got his shark rod out. And by, the, by, by four o'clock in the afternoon, we had seven aboard. And that's what hooked me. These would all be blues. All blues, yeah. Yeah, well, I think the best one was 115 that day. That was the first sharks I, I caught. From the background I have on you from David Turner, in the earliest days of your fishing career, I believe he was a commercial oyster fisherman. That's correct. A bit of a difference then from how things ended up, with you guiding anglers to some of the biggest and most sought-after fish in the sea. That started when I came out of the army, and I went oyster fishing on the fishery at, in the Fowl, and I was on that for about 15 years. And uh, then when I started shark fishing, I, I couldn't afford a shark boat at that time, so I converted my oyster boat into a a little um, wheelhouse on the front and I started shark fishing in that one and believe it or not the first fish I ever hooked on that little boat was a mako and I, this fish it, it only it took a bait of a mackerel quite close to the boat and it literally jumped about 10 feet in the air 20 feet from the boat and what the devil we got here Anyway, uh, the weather got bad and we, finally we, we, we lost it, it partied the line. But that was my own fault, I was trying to pressurise it. 
And which thing you cannot do with big fish is pressurise them. When they're in the water, they're a king. Until you've got them in the boat, they're, they're, they're a king. So what sort of time scale are we talking here? In the late 50s. Yeah. Maybe 59, 61, maybe. No, I think it was late 50s. What was it that persuaded you to specifically target Makos then? That wasn't a fact at all. Makos were um, bonus, they come along. Blue shark was their bread and butter fish, a shark. And that was the one that took the um, punters out, you know, the catchy fish. They were, they were good sport, actually. Well, as there was a, a lovely photograph of Frederick Forsyth there, up on the wall there. A lovely chap he was, and we, he, I think he had three that day with me. And uh, Mako's are, um, you never know when, you, when the Mako's coming along. I always found, when I analysed the Mako catches I caught, I tried to work it out in the month when they were coming along. And funny enough, they always came along either the day before the full moon or the day or two after. And that's what I, how I worked out. And I think David will tell you that, that I, he wanted to know it was the best time of year to catch a mega. I said, well, you have your holidays the week after the full moon. And it worked for him, he had one. And that worked for his mate as well. His, his, David's mate, Phil, he had one as well. One important fact to take on board here is that just along the coast at Lou, they had around 25 boats dedicated to sharking every day all summer long. Yet Falmouth, with just a handful of boats, saw many more Makos yeah. than everyone else put together. So if Makos are just a lucky catch, why was it that the Lou boats didn't see more than they did? Well, I think a lot to do with it is uh, our bit of coast here is, I think, is a bit more rugged than around Lou. And there's a lot of conger on the inshore rocks, and you find. I know we've I've uh, opened up one or two megas to see what they were feeding on, and they always had a conger in them. If it wasn't fresh, it was decomposing, and you know, getting digested. And there's a, a terrific amount of wrecks out here, which is were years ago were loaded with fish. Of course, it's, the food is there; the fish will come. Whereas the Lou Blue Sharkers would be working maybe 14 to 16 miles off. Yeah, they feed on the um, schools of pilcher. And because when the pilcher boats were here, I had a few mates on the pilcher boats. And when they were fishing at night, they used to get their nets ripped up quite a bit with blue sharks coming in, taking the fish out of the nets. And they used to let me know where they were working and if there were sharks in the area. So many blue sharks we could clear up, be less damage to their nets. And would I be right in thinking that most of your mako catches were made very much closer to the shore? The closest mako I hooked was only about, uh, oh, about three quarters of a mile offshore, down the manacles. And uh, the furthest one off was about ten mile. Might the kind of ground you had plus not being that far off, also have something to do with the difference between the Falmouth and Lou Mako shark catch rate. Plus, you were fishing more wrecks. There is a possibility, but uh, it all depends on the range of what the fish 
you know, they, they've been tagging blue sharks for years, but it's been impossible to ta tag a 400 pound mako. Your first ever mako, I believe, was a fish of 264 pounds taken back in 1960 by a chap called Very Young Grey. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. That was the first one I caught. And did you manage to learn any lesson from that first encounter that might stand you in good stead for the future? Did yeah, you? I did actually. He nearly had me overboard. I had him on the gaff and I had the full shark underneath the water. Of course he turned and I, th I think he probably broke a rib when I went down across the rail. But when, when I, I couldn't leave that gaff go. He could have, if he kept going, he'd have had me overboard. But he, I always knew then, get his head out of the water. Big fish, head out of the water, and he's going anywhere, and he's going up in the air. So that was the first lesson I learned very quickly. Shortly after that, to borrow the words of Chief Brodie in the Jaws film, you decided you needed a bigger boat. So in 1961, you bought yourself a 50-odd footer named Internos. Internos, yeah, 52-footer she was. She was a liner, long liner from Newland. And in your first season together, you landed a £306 Mako. Yes, yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, I was a bit worried first. When, when I hooked it, I thought, well, this boat is a bit too big. I, I, you know, you need a reasonably small boat to handle those things. Anyway, we, um, we managed to land it. Got on a block and tackle and got it aboard. And that was... Uh, Christening of one or two big ones. And according to my notes, you had a make going every single year after that until 1971. Got more than one in a year. Oh yeah, but, but never missed a year. Never missed a year. No, never missed a year. Which would you say was your best year then? Well, I, I'm not sure now. What, it was in the 60s where I, I had, I think I had, I'm not sure if it was two or three. I know I had two in the same year, because I caught one on the Monday, and that was over 400, 410 or something, and on the Friday, I caught another one, which was 408. So, uh, It seems to me that there's a lot of mystery and mystique about Mako sharks. In which way? Well, nobody, it seems, knew quite when to expect them. They just suddenly started appearing, or probably more to the point, getting themselves caught. Then just as suddenly, they seemed to disappear, with not a single one caught since 1971. Well, they're out here still. they One or two chaps evoked them, but they haven't landed them off Falmouth. Yeah, there was Mako out there to be caught. But, um, you know, one will turn up one day. Could the low catch rate not be linked to the lower number of people going out shark fishing generally today? which means less rubby-dubby going in and less of a percentage chance of accidentally hooking into one. It has deteriorated quite a bit, but, uh, well, it's... Actually, I'm inclined to uh, respect sharks now rather than kill them. You know, sometimes I look at a shark and a, and a 400 plus fish and I thought, what a beautiful fish. You know, it's a shame to kill it. But, you know, the angler is so keen on catching it and you just can't say, right, you're putting the knife across the line and letting free. You've got to try and catch it if you can. But uh, 
So if, as you've said, there are still Mercos about, but they're either not being targeted or accidentally caught, if someone like me came along and said, OK, what should I do then to be with the very best chance of catching one, what would be your advice? Well, the first thing to do is go along the seafront and find out your top skipper. And then have a chat with him and see what he thinks about it. See what the chances are. But what if I had my own boat and wanted to catch one under my own steam? Taking things one step at a time, what would be the best time of year? Well, I think the earliest I caught a Mako is June. Either end of May or June, and that was really early. But the best months of the year, I think, if you, if you look at the records, is um, from July to September. Then they, they seem to drop off. What about tides? Any particular set, sizes or direction of flow, either ebb or flood? No, weather is the most important thing. It's not a day for a picnic out there, but you want a nice breeze of wind, a, a muggy day, not a lot of sun, and uh, that's about the best days, to, uh, well, for any shark, some of that. And wherever possible, close to a full moon. Yeah, so either a week before or a week after the full moon. That's when the Mako seem to take. Well, on my records that do any, I try 90% of them are caught on that moon phase. What sort of drifts are you taking? Is it short drifts in shore over specific spots like when poor beagle fishing, or one long continuous drift such as when you're out fishing for blues? No, I just do one continuous drift. Sometimes if I was fishing for a Mako, I would fish where I knew there were several wrecks on the seabed, and also rocks close to the shore. And I maybe a long drift down across those, and then I pick up and come in and have another drift over the same, same drift, hoping that there was a mako and they're looking for something to feed on. But a nice long unbroken rubby dubby trail always works better. Yeah, that's right, yes. David tells me that for you, the rubby dubby is actually the most important ingredient for mako shark fishing. It really is, yeah and that you had a particular way of making and using yours. Well, there is, but I don't know if to give that secret at well. I'm not shark fishing anymore, so I don't suppose it, It's got to be fresh for a Mako. Catch your fresh fish and use that. The fresh blood is what they, they, they'll come up on. But uh, all rotten fish and... It's all right for blue sharks. They'll go for anything. And you'd mince it up then put it into a big wicker basket. That's right. Yeah. And when the boat used to rise and fall in the sea, it made a big splash, because that gave off a signal to the shark that there was a bit of activity in the area, and he would be quite interested in anything like that. He'll find out what's going on. Now, I know it's been over 40 years since anyone caught a mako in the UK, and in terms of tackle, things have most certainly moved on a lake. Even so, talk us through the gear, the terminal rigs, and the setting of it all up as you remember it back from your Mako days. Well, as long as it's fresh bait, that's the main thing. And the rods, reels and lines. If we were going specifically for Mako, we always use an American Pen 90 with a 80-pound breaking strain line. What about the trace required for beating a good Mako? Yeah, the traces were about... 
18 feet in length and uh, sometimes if you didn't have a long trace like that a blue would tangle himself up and break and bite the line off and we use a mustad shark hook I forget the size of it now oh probably a 12 or a 14 on forge to give it additional strength yeah there was a forged hook yeah how typically would these fish take a bait? Big fish don't always mean big runs. In fact, sometimes quite the opposite. So was there any pattern to all of this? No. I've had some of taking the bait, just had a couple of clicks on the reel, and I said, oh, I said, wait a minute, I said, he'll come back and take it again. He's only had a taster. <laughs> and uh, in about two or three minutes... That fish had been swimming around with a bait down in the stomach. I said, well, wind him with a new bait on. Then he went in, bang, up comes the maker. And another time, they'll hit the bait like an express train and fly it. The most I've seen one jump is seven times without stopping, leaping, you know, eight or ten feet clear of the water. Must be an amazing sight. Oh, never forget it. I'll never forget the first one I hooked. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Beautiful sight. Let's move on to timing the strike. Though I suppose that too can vary from fish to fish. Well, just let them, let them have a run. That, that is a bit of a, a fallacy as well because nine times out of ten, once a shark got a bait, you'll swallow it anyway. All this waiting and striking that sometimes is... You can do it sometimes, you strike a bit early and then you pull the bait in his mouth. So, uh, after a long run, it's usually he'll stop and then he'll swallow it. But um, they big boys, no need to strike they, they strike you. <laughs> okay, so we've set the hook, and now it's time to start working and getting the thing in. Talk us through a typical boat of what comes next. Two words for that are work. <laughs> yeah so well to ease it sometimes we would uh, well we always had to start the engine because they were so fast going away that we had to go after them to retrieve line and uh, it was just well it was just time and patience and uh, no forcing the fish when he was in the water if he wanted to do something we couldn't do nothing about it let him do it but once he start to tire, you had a bit of a chance of bringing them in. It's just like having a dog on the lead sometimes. If you want to run, let him go. <laughs> and can you give us some idea of how long it might typically take from a big maker taking the bait to having him at the side of the boat? Well, the longest we've had one is six hours from taking the bait to landing. And that was a guy called Jock MacDonald. Scotsman from, uh, I forget where it come from, and that fish was 408 pounds. I suppose the uh, closest for Mako would be about hour and a half, two hours. I suppose it's the quickest I've ever had one. Falmouth, and you in particular, have a UK record for Mako sharks that's absolutely second to none. Yeah. From what David Turner's researched, out of around 45 Makos taken throughout the whole country, your clients were responsible for 15 of them. That's a staggering one out of every three. 
Yeah, not bad, is it? <laughs> not bad. It's absolutely fantastic. And out of all those, Ted Belson was the only person ever to catch two. Yeah, that's correct. I have it as 410 and 260. In consecutive years. Yeah. So what do you put that down to? Look? Yeah. Though he, he said he, he came down the same week as he did the year before to catch another Mako. I said, yeah, I thought, well, that's a tall order. I'm jiggered if he didn't go and do it. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, the last Mako to be caught in British waters and weighing in at 355 pounds was caught by David Turner back in 1971 aboard your boat. Yeah, David had that one. Now, shark fishing generally didn't suddenly end in 1971, but catches of mako sharks obviously did. So why do you think that was? Well, I lost a mako in 1972. That one parted us, and that was the chap on the reel. Instead of unscrewing the storage drag to release the line a bit, he, he let the release go. Of course, I mean, all tangled up, and he just held on and parted. That was a fish well in the 400, and that was a week after a full moon, in the same place where I caught five others. Uh. When I was interviewing your brother Frank, he mentioned an encounter earlier that summer with a mako that had grabbed a fish on his mackerel gear while he was commercially feathering just inside the manacles. Poor Big Wise, mate. Poor Big was living there. Although, we were down at Conger fishing one day, and there was a, we were, a chap had a, a grey mullet for bait. A grey mullet about, oh, it must have been pound and a half, two pound mullet. I didn't take it on here. He put this thing on and lowered it away. All of a sudden, this reel screamed. And he held on, held on, he parted, he lost it. And about 30 yards from the boat, this mako jumped out. I said, you just lost the mako, mate. And that fish jumped seven times between where we were moored up less than half a mile from the shore to the manacle buoy. Last time we saw, it, saw him jump was right alongside the manacle buoy. The strange thing is that around the time the Mako stopped being caught, we now know that globally we were heading into a period which scientists recognise as being the start of an ongoing problem of rising sea temperatures with all sorts of planktonic animals and new fish species turning up, which should never get within a hundred miles of the British coast. With mako's being described as a warm water species, why is it, do you think, that as conditions have theoretically got better for them, catch rates have dropped away to nothing? Well, I don't believe in that so much as what... There's still mako's out there, because I know of some skippers who've... who've hooked them, but they've had the misfortune to lose them. And that's been uh, in, the, in the 70s, in the, in the 80s, so they're still out there. So prospective mako anglers need to get themselves organised and out there, and if they do, they should still have the same chance of hooking one now that you would have had some 40 years ago. Yeah, I don't see why they shouldn't be out there. There's plenty of food out there for them. Not so much food for the blue shark now as there was. Now the poachers are, uh, and mackerel are gone, but there's still food there. They're still catching a few blues, I think. And you're adamant that while you was catching all these fish, your brother Frank, 
who you'd obviously see down at the Moorings on a regular basis, despite what's been claimed, didn't contribute to Falmouth's make or total at all. He lives in Cuckoo Land. He's, he's a big dreamer, put it that way. <laughs> Although he's my brother. <laughs> Not that say much anyway. Now, despite the fact that you have this well-deserved reputation as the most successful mako hunter ever in British waters, the bulk of your shark fishing was actually out there looking for and catching blues. Yeah, that was their bread and butter fish. When the mako came along, that was a, a real perk. And you proved just as successful with the blues, with statistics like 44 fish in a single day. Yeah, 44 blues in one day. A figure that's only just recently been beaten by Andrew Alsop out of Milford Haven. Yeah, he's 44. I forget now. It was 57 actually, but in fairness, he fishes 12 hour days, whereas you only used to fish 8, so your hourly catch rate is still higher. You also had 660 blues in your best ever season. Yeah, oh, we've done that down here easy. Regular for, I know in June, July, we were catching 20, 30 a day. Blues. You could, but your life on it, you would catch a dozen a day on a bad day. Then in, in those years, years. And on top of that, the most Mako sharks ever caught aboard one boat. Yeah. That's some reputation. And all of it coming from one earlier chance encounter. Yeah, well, Fred Belson, he was called. He um, chartered the boat. Well, he didn't. He used to work for a millionaire up in the industrial Birmingham somewhere, and he brought him down to go shark fishing. And uh, that's how I came to meet Fred. And he got hooked on shark fishing, and that was it. Didn't Falmouth also have the British record for the Mako before Joy Shallop and Alan Dingle beat it over at Lou? No, I think Lou always had the Mako record. Well, Frank was talking about a fish of £498.5 taken from Falmouth being beaten by the current £500 record at Lou. No, I, no, I don't think that's, that's true. 498 was the Lou one and it was beaten again with the 500 one. But again, that £500 Mako had a £50 Conger in stomach. So actually it's only £450. I've heard that rumour from other sources too. I also heard that they hung the fish on the scales by its jaws to prevent the conger from slipping out. Did they? But how true that is, I couldn't really say. That's not cricket, is it? Getting back to the blues again now, it seems that these fish are making quite a major comeback. Andrew Alsop, the Milford Haven skipper who beat your single day record recently, caught and released a fish in 2011 of £222, which is bigger than the official British record, and he gets quite a few fish these days in the 100 to 150 pound bracket, which certainly wasn't the case when I was blue shark fishing out of Lou. Do you have any thoughts on why that should suddenly come about? Well, I don't, I don't really know why that should be. Well, the biggest blue I've ever caught is 100 and 190. That's the best one I've had out there. But uh, I've had several 100, 130, 40 mark. I suppose the fact that all sharks were brought ashore back then to tempt the next batch of holiday anglers to book trips must have had an effect on both sides and numbers, which after a more recent mark declining shark in interest may now be starting to recover. Well, uh, you can't keep emptying the pot, can you? But 
Actually, I think they, they, I wonder sometimes if these sharks don't come up here to breed because I've caught several pregnant big blues and that, I think I had a 160 pound mako once. See, that one couldn't have been very old. And I'm wondering sometimes if they don't come up in this area or down around the Azores somewhere to breed or give birth to their young. What about the other main shark species? Any encounters with paw beagles or threshers? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I've never caught a thresher. I've seen, seen one or two out there. But I've well, caught a, quite a few poor beagle, but not very big. The biggest one was 278. But they do it. They, they go up quite a, quite a size. I take it the poor beagles are caught close to the shore, in around the Manacles Reef. Yeah, normally. Yeah, they, they, they feed a lot on pollock, I think. I sometimes wonder if the catch total of 45 makos isn't actually more, because it wasn't until Hetty Ethorn tried to claim an IGFA line class record for a poor beagle back in 1955, which the IGFA subsequently identified as being a mako, that anyone really knew that makos came as far north as us. So maybe some other mako catches have also been misidentified as poor beagles too. Well, I don't think there was many, because it's... A poor beagle got a, a serrated edge tooth and a mako got a straight one. Except for the back ones, they're a bit serrated. But you can't mistake a, a big mako, he got teeth like my fingers, like that sticking in his mouth. So why do you think it was that you never actually caught any threshers? Well, the sole reason I don't think they were here. Or we were fishing the wrong way for them, I don't know. I know they keep... They, there's one chap... Up on the Dorset coast, catch a few threshers, but they're not really big ones. Ted Legg was the thresher man. Ted Legg, yeah, he catches uh, quite a few threshers, but for some reason they must uh, like that area. Must be a reason for it. But the ones I've seen have uh, been literally what their name is. They were threshing with their tail. They were rounding up schools of mackerel or some school of fish. One mako had 400 pounder plus. We gutted him to see what he was eating and we took nine bass over four pound each out of him. We had a gut full of bass. Looking forward now, what do you see as the future for shark fishing in British waters? Conservation is going to take over and I think it's going to die out. There's not the... Uh, thrill of the spin-off after now. You know, years ago, shark was made out to be a man-eater, a killer, and all this. You know, a shark is a very sensitive thing. He's very, very intelligent fish. He's not that intelligent that he don't know who, but he's a very intelligent fish, and he's a very docile fish. I've had him come up alongside the boat in a basket with all the fish stuff coming out, and I leant over the side and stroked them down. Sm literally smelled them down on the back. And they, they weren't on the hook. They were just inquisitive what's in the basket. One day I looked over the side and we counted seven blues that are in the basket. At one time. Never see any makos up around the basket? If we did one. Well, only one. And this chap came and said, hey scam. I said, yeah. He said, there's a big fish swimming around your back of your boat. Uh, what do you mean by a big fish? 
looked over the side, and there was a Smako nudging the rubby-dubby basket. Anyway, I was thinking, Macron put over the side, but he didn't take, and it was an hour from when that fish was around the boat until he took a bait. And then we had none. He was 400. What about the part that commercial fishing plays in this story? Particularly, longliners catching them either accidentally or even deliberately to fin them for the Asian shark's fin suit market. Well, it's sustained fishing is the thing. You cannot go out there and, and fish like they are nowadays and it's going to last forever because it isn't. You know, they had, um, I forget the actual tonnage, but there was one Scotch boat there, a mackerel boat, he went out and shut his net, and his first uh, maiden trip, one shot, he had, oh, I, I, I can't think now, was over 700 ton of one shot mackerel. Well, it was all right for them, but it didn't look good for the mackerel population. Since the 50s, 60s, boats and tackle and the gear has improved so much, you know, the fish don't have a chance now. You know they got gear now, they can tell what fish there is that they're metering. By the air bladder in the fish, different types of fish, you can say, oh, that's either attic or that's mackerel or pilchard, and they can tell by the, by the colour of the air bladder in the fish, which is uh, beyond belief nearly, isn't it? So people who were lucky enough to fish in the 50s, 60s and 70s saw the best of it. And for those coming after, it's now a case of making what you can out of what's left. We had the best of it. Well, it, it is until, it, uh, until the bottom falls out of it, really, and we leave it alone for a while. And then they may pull back. But it isn't, it isn't only in air waters, it's worldwide. Everybody's out fishing themselves. And what do you make of your place in angling history? as the man responsible for the most mako sharks ever caught in British waters. Well, I don't know. You, I leave somebody else with that then. <laughs> All I know is I caught him. <laughs> oh, it's a good life, I enjoyed it. Any final thoughts or comments before we wind the thing up? Only thing I'd say is that leave them alone now to breed and let the waters restock themselves. I don't think I'd say I'm better glad I'm in here. <laughs> One or two of them, anyway. Now that's the perfect thought to wind the interview up on. It's been a pleasure meeting you, anyway. And it's been a very great pleasure meeting and recording this interview with you. All that remains is for me to say a very big thank you to Robin Vinicom for giving up his time and sharing some of his undoubted Mako secrets with us here. 